0: So we have been looking at a critical text, uh, I would say, for Border City Church, but really it's for Jesus. (laughs) And hopefully we are doing our best as a church to be about him and not about ourselves. And this passage of scripture is Isaiah 61. You don't need to necessarily turn there right now. Um, Some of you may be able to quote it verbatim by now. (laughs) Uh, Isaiah 61, and it says this, that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, uh, prophesying of Jesus, be, uh, because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel or the good news to the poor. And uh, he has sent me. So the Spirit of God is upon me for this purpose, to preach the gospel to the poor, but then there's a commissioning, there's a mandate, there's a, there's a context for the call. He has sent me, my mission to heal or bind up the brokenhearted. That's where it begins. So, so much in church has missed that point altogether. Like, we just kind of believe that we're supposed to believe this stuff about Jesus and then eck our way through a life. And actually, the gospel's first purpose in our lives is to heal places of brokenness in our heart. Why? Because life, the issues of life, flow from the heart. Guard your heart with all diligence because the issues of life flow from it. Everything in your life is going to flow from your heart, and anything that's broken is going to flow brokenness. And he actually wants to heal his people. But then it goes on to say another step, if you will, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Most of us would not want to acknowledge or admit that there is any element of bondage or captivity in our lives, but when we come to Jesus, I can guarantee you uh, there is, because we live in a fallen world that has become the way it is because of sin and that sin has enveloped us from birth. Uh, the evil in this world has become our norm. We've become... We've become a, uh, 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 um, uh, all the words that are coming to me aren't the right one. <laughs> Which stinks from standing in front of people. <laughs> we've become accustomed to a norm that is in this world that is foreign to the kingdom of heaven and the way things were before the fall. And those circumstances work brokenness in our lives, and they also uh, bring captivity and bondage. And so we've been looking at that over the past couple of weeks. Is the, we've talked about healing of the heart. Now we're talking about liberating from, the cap, from captivity. And specifically, relative to Detroit, we've been looking at um, common areas of bondage, relative to most human beings, but we'll say specific to Detroit. We've looked at freedom from fear, freedom from sin and addiction, and we've been talking real, right? Yeah. This hasn't just been a bunch of pontificating theory. This has been talking vulnerably from our own experiences. Uh, we're going to look at freedom from depression today. And we're also going to look at freedom from poverty uh, in the future, the very near future. So if you'll uh, kind of just go with me, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10. Today we're looking at freedom from depression. And um, when I say that, let me acknowledge on the front end that there are different forms of depression. I am not one who has been diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, However, I have been in times of deep depression that have been circumstance-based. And sometimes life, remember how I said that this world that we live in has like darkness and evil in it? Well, sometimes that darkness and evil can bring you to a place of despair and hopelessness. And I want to say for the city that we live in, Detroit, has, been, has, has been, seen decades of circumstances beating down the city. And when it's still down, kicking it and then beating it a little bit more. And uh, depression, hopelessness, violation of the greatest degree, being used and abused. And those things, those realities that we face in life, can bring us to depressed states. And so that's what we're looking at. There is a clinical depression where you actually have a chemical imbalance in your body's systems that may benefit from uh, medication. So we're not saying don't go the medication route if that would help. But whether or not you need medication or not, what we're talking about today is a recipe for the foundation of freedom from depression. Mm-hmm. So use the medication if you need it. If you don't need it, don't use it. Definitely use this, yeah. what we're about to talk about. the chemistry, foundation that you're about to Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So Romans chapter 10, let's look at that together. The idea is depression. Now, I'm not talking about the clinical type. Now I'm talking about something that's circumstantial. I think, I don't know what it's like to have clinical depression. So in either case, definitely the circumstantial is a report that we're believing there's, there's, there's a something in our consciousness of a belief that brings us to a place, and, and that belief can be rooted in real realities that you're walking through. But it's a belief that you can grab a hold of in your heart that will actually make you feel depressed. So Romans chapter 10, verse 16, if you look at that with me, and verse 17. But they have not all believed the gospel. Anybody know what gospel means? Good news. good news. They have uh, so it's good news. They have not all believed or obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our report?" And that word "report" uh, that's translated into English as "report." That that concept is kind of like the rumor going around town. It's the it's the it's the it's this kind of news. It's this idea that's being perpetuated about a thing. Who has believed our report? Uh, so then. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So this is what I want to say. There are many reports that pass through our conscious belief system on a daily basis. All the time. I woke up one day this week and I had, uh, anybody ever had this happen? You wake up and you have an email in your inbox and it's like six in the morning and you open it up and it's like, oh it's like one of those things, you know. It's like, oh, sheesh, like great to wake up to this. And it was just some like disappointing, bad news, kind of ugly stuff. And it just left me with an icky feeling. And even though it wasn't that big of a deal, the icky feeling just wouldn't leave. And um, and, I, and I had to start praying, praying that through. And just and, and it was kind of like my prayers were bouncing off the walls, and I wasn't feeling like I was getting anywhere. And, and so I just began to... Um, just kind of pray, pray it through. I'll, I'll talk more about it later, actually. But sometimes we can have a, a news, a report, if you will, that brings with it an idea that you accept into your heart and it causes icky feelings. Can cause depression. There was uh, earlier on, Minda was uh, uh, talking about the real estate. Well, when you start with real estate um, as, as a means of generating income, they oftentimes tell you look, at the very earliest, you're not even going to see income for the first three months. And even when you start seeing income, it's still just like beginning. And there were times uh, as I was beginning that the financial pressures for me were unthinkable. And here I had brought my family across the seas. We used to live in South Africa uh, to plant a church in Detroit. And here I am, I'm planting and I'm doing this thing in real estate, intense financial pressures that were so real it's not like I was thinking that maybe something bad would happen. No, there's stuff happening. You know what I mean? And uh, led me to a place I can remember at one point of just being finished, like done. Not done with ministry or anything, but just done emotion, like just crashed <laughs> on a, and, and just, just finished, brought to that place. There was a report that I was believing. It's not like I'm some heinous sinner for believing it. I mean, I was brought through circumstances that anybody would be challenged in, but there was nevertheless a report that I was believing. And if you look back at that scripture that we just referenced, receiving God's word in verse 17, faith comes by hearing. Who has believed our report? The idea is they haven't all believed the good news that God wants to send to us. The reports that are going through our consciousness every day And it is believing God's report in place of the the bad report, can I say, that actually displaces the negative ickinesses, the depression that come with that belief system. Is that making sense? We want, in the face of trials that we inevitably will walk through in this life, we want to walk with victory looking at God's report. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So receiving God's word by faith displaces the, report, the reports of this world. And so I would ask our, ourselves, just let's take stock as we get into this this morning. What bad reports do we believe? What are those kind of open doors that tend to be your vulnerable, the chink in your armor, where that thing gets in and, and it starts to drag you down and you can feel that that sense? So I've got a family member Um, who for whatever reason always tends to almost view everything as uh, some kind of an attack or rejection I don't know what that is but there's definitely a report being believed, skewing things how about financial worry that's a is that a report how about worrying about your health worrying about your loved ones, your family members how about worrying about things that actually aren't supposed to be your burden? Yeah. Carrying something that's not supposed to be your thing to carry. How about afraid of being a failure? I know people who are afraid beyond all else of, that they would fail in their lives. Afraid of doing something that once hurt you. I've got a friend, Steve Sudworth. You, you all know him. He pastors a church in Chicago. Believe it or not, he struggles with a stutter. He's a preacher. You would never know it. At, in high school, after he gave his life to Jesus, they asked him to get in front of the whole school, which was like a 1,000 kids, and to share his testimony. Actually, it was after he, was, he graduated from high school, they asked him to come back as a graduated uh, college student and to, and to share his testimony. He got up in front of a 1,000 teenage high schoolers and he stood for two minutes in utter silence not being able to get one word out. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he had to look at whoever was hosting that meeting and say just kind of indicate that I can't do it. Most embarrassing and humiliating thing can you imagine the fear of ever ever getting in front of a group of people and speaking again for him. Worrying about something where you had felt hurt in the past never wanting to go back to anything that can bring that place. It's a cage. And he's called to be one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard. Thoughts of poor self-image, being a disappointment to other people or God. Ask yourself, what, what is your, the bad report that you oftentimes hear in your heart? How about confidence issues? Unsure of yourself and your abilities. Am I good, even? Who am I? How about overwhelming pressures at work? Or failing relationships. Unhealed wounds that have come from life's trials. Again, what is, what, is, what is yours? And we don't want to say what is yours for the sake of introversion and introspection. We want to say it for we can walk in freedom Amen. over that stuff. It, good news. Good news would indicate that the thing that's making you poor, not just economically... You can find healing. You can find liberty. Anything else is an impotent gospel. Jesus has resurrection power. Amen. So believing bad reports over what God says causes us to carry what the Bible calls a, calls a spirit of heaviness. I call that depression. I'm going to say that again. Believing bad reports over what God says because every thought that I've ever had about financial worry or about worry and concern about this or that, if it makes me to feel depressed and hopelessness and despair, I can guarantee you this, it doesn't come from heaven. Heaven has a complete alternative, more real, more powerful reality that is accessible at any given time. And the war in this earth is, can I get my believers to believe me or to believe the voices of this earth? And if the believers will do what they're called, believe, then we can see heaven activated through our lives. So believing bad reports over what God has said causes us to carry a spirit of heaviness. That's where that depression thing comes from. It's it's the internal belief system of something that is contrary to what God wants to do and is doing. So a spirit of heaviness... And this applies beyond depression. It applies to pretty much any cage. The spirit of heaviness is displaced by what the Bible calls a garment of praise. So if you'll look with me now to Isaiah chapter 61. You ever heard of that passage of scripture? We're going to read that. Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 4. We're going to read again. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all all that mourn, So, so far we've seen that the gospel is going to heal hearts and it's going to proclaim liberty to captives and it's also going to issue something of comfort, but then there's a progression that we see here in verse 3. It says, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion. That word for appoint means to set in their place. So it's not even just being healed or liberated, it's also finding your calling, your place in God's unfolding of, of his purposes throughout history. You've got a call to appoint you into your place to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. What displaces the spirit of heaviness? Garment of praise. Wearing a mantle, clothing yourself in praise. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, about how we can displace this a little bit more, but I just want to continue reading right now. That's kind of the end of the shift in this progression of scripture that we've just read, where it starts off that the gospel is going to poor people, they're being healed, they're being liberated, God's doing a work in them, but then it begins to shift when it says to appoint to them, because now it's not just the work being done in them, guess what? It's being done through them to reach others. What God does in you is always both and. It's for you and it's for others that you will minister to others after he ministers to you. And after this passage, after that thing we just read, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, we begin to see a shift happening where it says, And they shall be called trees, oaks, sturdy, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And they shall rebuild, let me make sure I get it right. They shall rebuild the old waste. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair waste cities, the desolations of many generations. I love that progression. It takes people who are poor. And that doesn't mean economically disenfranchised only. You know that. It's spiritual poverty. And sometimes the worst things in our life can bring us to the best place that we can be, which is poor. Why? Because spiritual poverty, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty is a magnet for the kingdom of heaven. And the work of the kingdom of heaven is not just to fix and rebuild your wastes, it's to cause you to be sent back out as a rebuilder of wastes. How many of you think that that would apply to some in Detroit? We've got a harvest field of people that the nation would call broken and good for nothing, and that God says, you are a rebuilder of ruins, watch out for what I'll do. If you'll just listen to the, if you'll receive the gospel. Discipleship, Exactly. So spirit of heaviness. What is the spirit of heaviness? A spirit of heaviness is the feelings that come from believing a bad report. In the context that we're talking about here, the spirit of heaviness, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the spirit of heaviness is believing something other than good news. The whole foundation of this passage of Scripture begins with the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news. That's where it all begins, the gospel. Who has believed? Not all have believed the gospel. Who has believed, or as Isaiah says, who has believed our report? It all gets back to the foundation of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we are believing God's report we can be broken from a spirit of heaviness. The, like I said, it, it comes from believing a bad report and you, you can see this I think typified in probably the most important story that there is which is the resurrection of Jesus in, 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 the, in the Gospels. What is happening at the time of Jesus' resurrection? It's amazing. I've been studying the resurrection for the past number of weeks. What is happening at the point of Jesus' resurrection? Who had said to his disciples over and over that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over to the elders, he's going to be scourged and mocked and beaten and killed, and he will rise again the third day. He said this over and over throughout the Gospels, and yet these people who left everything to follow him, who had, against all sanity, had confessed that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, when he goes to the cross and dies, they all believe that it's finished. So at the, at the tomb, we've got the women who come to visit the tomb. Are they rejoicing in anticipation that Sunday morning that Jesus is going to rise today on the third day? No, they're weeping. They're depressed. They have believed the bad report, full stop. And then later we hear about these two disciples that are leaving Jerusalem, going to a town called Emmaus. And, and some stranger comes up next to them and starts to say, hey, why are you, why are you guys so depressed? And it says that their heart is... Um, they were, uh, they were sad. And he starts to say, don't you know that Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day? And he starts to open up the scriptures to them. And, and, and that stranger who was walking next to them was the resurrected Jesus. And finally, when they ate a meal together, their eyes were open. They saw Jesus, and they were like Jesus. And then he just disappeared. And they turn around from Emmaus, and they go straight back to Jerusalem to tell the twelve who are in a uh, room together. And it's the most dark and depressed thing. Mary, the two Marys, have come to them and said, "We, Jesus, has risen from the grave." And they're like, "Ah, women, be quiet." And I'm just saying what they did. <laughs> I'm not agreeing with them. I'm just saying what they did. <laughs> and uh, and and they they they're, it's the most gloomy, depressed thing. And then the two disciples from Emmaus come running in and said, "We've, I we, we Jesus saw the resurrected Jesus." Everyone was instinctively depressed. Why? Because they were all believing a bad report. I'm telling you, this is the key to disciples. Living in victory is our belief in His good news even when it counters everything we are seeing in front of us. All the bad reports that are floating into our intellect and into our heart. There is another report that comes to us from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And it will lift our gaze to taking on, even when it doesn't make any sense, a garment of praise. And that garment of praise, my friends, will... Push off the spirit of heaviness. And so what happens when Jesus comes into this place? Um, Did they rejoice? No, they thought he was a ghost. They were afraid. And Thomas, as you may well know, wouldn't believe unless he could actually touch the wounds of Jesus. And when he touches the wounds of Jesus, out of his mouth says, My Lord and my God. Praise comes from encountering The resurrected reality of Jesus. There's something about that. And you and I are not unlike Thomas. Just because 2,000 years have elapsed, we still have the exact same, not the exact same, he's not physically here with us. We have the same access to that resurrected Jesus because he is alive. And He is dwelling here by His Spirit. So we can still encounter Him. Maybe you don't touch and feel the wounds, but He can touch your heart. And so encountering resurrection power in your heaviness will not only bring praise for His resurrected reality, it will even bring gratitude for, for the trial. When you touch victory... When you in the midst of your trial, you, when you touch his victory, even if you haven't seen the victory yet, do you understand what I mean? You touch in your heart of hearts the victory. You actually become grateful for the trial that you walk through because you found Jesus in a way that you never would have found him otherwise. He is found in that place of human need. And, a, and this is what I want to point out here before we get into how do we put on this garment of praise, is I want to point this out. Because everybody in here, God's call for you is to be a rebuilder of ruins. Not just to have your ruins rebuilt, but to be able to rebuild others. Part of the maturity maturity process that brings you to become a rebuilder of ruins is the skill of living in a lifestyle of displacing a spirit of heaviness with a garment of praise. Do you see that in those four verses? The progression, healing heart, liberating captives, appointing giving them beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, and then a garment of praise for spirit of heaviness, and then we find about them becoming oaks of righteousness and rebuilders of ruins. It's part of the journey, my friends. Don't accept your spirit of heaviness. I'm going to have a spirit of heaviness. I'll probably have another spirit of heaviness this week. mean I'm like less of a believer? No, it's what you do with your spirit of heaviness. Don't just accept it. And if, it's, and if you're doing what you know to do and you're still feeling it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You just keep doing what you know to do. Yeah. You keep on making acts of faith. I'm telling you that thing is going to break. Yes. I'm telling you. What are the effects of a spirit of heaviness? Your expectation. So when you're under that cloud, what, what, what happens to you? Your expectation becomes based on what is seen or what is feared rather than what God has said. It's like if... if I heard one man say one time that faith is to the believer what oxygen is to the body. And a spirit of heaviness will choke you. Faith is drowned. All you see is the gloom. All you see is the dark cloud. Another effect of a spirit of heaviness is that your sight is taken off of God's superior power. You're magnifying and looking at the problem and not seeing the way bigger force behind the problem. Your trust is no longer in what God has promised. God has made promises. And the wonderful thing about God's promises, I don't know if it's wonderful, but they take place in the midst of a fallen world that will look like the exact opposite of the promises. That his followers must believe in the midst of alternative information. What are the effects of a garment of praise? Let's get to the good part. Wearing that garment of praise will point your heart's gaze off of what you see or what you fear and onto him. You see him in the midst of the trial. And that's where the victory starts. You start dancing before the circumstances change. That's where we start looking like a weirdo. And it feels good to be one. And another effect of a garment of praise is that it ties your heart to the hope of his goodness. Just like we sang earlier, he is good. And to, and to know in the midst of everything looking bad that he remains good, and I can trust him in the middle of this. Another effect of a garment of praise is that it produces faith and expectation. And a huge effect of a garment of praise, Hear you, me, this, that wearing that garment of praise opens up your heart to begin to perceive the good report. Do you remember when I said I had that email in the morning earlier this week and I had the icky feelings? I, I didn't know what to do. And so I began to pray in what the Bible calls other tongues, pray in the Spirit. The Bible, Paul says in Romans chapter eight that that uh, um, that I don't pray as I yeah, I don't, for I don't know how I should pray as I ought, but the Spirit makes groanings that cannot be uttered, and I began to pray in the Spirit in other tongues, as the Scripture says, and just and just uh, just kind of tuning in to the Holy Spirit in His presence with me, and as I did, the Scripture rose up inside of me no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up against me in judgment, you shall condemn. And I began to just rejoice in that scripture. And I began to take authority. And I began to just be, find my I just knew. It was like something clicked. I can't explain it any other way. It's like something tilted. And that icky feeling was gone. And even though I, I felt bad about the content of the email and that kind of stuff, the ickiness was gone. I, I, I just knew I've got the victory. I'm free. We want to live in that place. What would have happened had I not found that victory in that moment for the rest of my day? Would that have affected my effectiveness? I would want to suggest probably. We want to live in victory and learn the skill of displacing a spirit of heaviness with a garment of praise. Uh, You may have a doctor prescribe medicine for you uh, for certain things. I honestly want to say, can we take this just as seriously? That what I'm about to tell you from the scriptures, what we're going to look at is every bit, if not more so, vital than prescribed medication. I'm not just saying for your psychological problems, for anything. Live by this. Am I saying don't take your medicine? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying take this every bit as serious, okay? Eight biblical lessons very quickly on how to put on a garment of praise. Let's fly through it. First of all, Hebrews 4.11 labor to enter into rest. It's Such an interesting paradox, labor to enter into rest. Hebrews 4.11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, unless any man fall after the same example of unbelief. I want to say to you, in the midst of your problem, in the midst of your bad report, in the midst of the icky feelings that go with it, there is rest That icky feeling that I had earlier this week, I found a place of rest when I had breakthrough spiritually. There's rest that was already inside of you, even when you feel like you have reached the end and there's nothing in me, there's no energy left, there's nothing left to grab onto. There's rest inside of you already. Why? Because if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you already have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and the Spirit is fully in heaven, and he's fully in you, and what is in heaven is already inside of you. And you tap into something, and yet the Bible says that you labor to enter into that rest. Aren't we already just born-again Christians and we just rest? Doesn't it just kind of like, poof, I put my faith in Jesus, now I just live and rest? The Bible says that we labor to enter into Rest. And so there were actions that I had to take. I had to start praying in the Spirit, praying in other tongues. I began to uh, just yield myself to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I don't even know how to pray, but just I'm, I'm you know, seeking you and I'm, I'm doing stuff. And, and, then, and then this scripture comes to me. and I begin to confess and quote that scripture. They're actions. It's not a labor of like duty and, and like I've got to work my way back to God. It's putting into practice the God that is inside of me. Number two, if you'll look with me to Psalm 69, and we're just going to read from David. And I would say, in the midst of your depression, I cannot recommend anything in the Scriptures higher, other than the resurrection, in terms of meditating on that, than the Psalms of David, who walked through circumstances unthinkable, impossible, total David and Goliath, literally. And in the midst of those things, he learned something that he called encouraging himself in the Lord. In Psalm 69, a messianic prophecy psalm, it is going to speak to us on steps that David took that I would encourage you to even write these things down, meditate on them, you put in your arsenal, put this to practice. I've got a medical student in the back there. He's prescribing this medicine to you, okay? Yeah, he's not a medical doctor, but this is, this is medication for your life. Psalm 69, the first thing out of the seven things that we're going to look at here quickly is to be real and be free to acknowledge your situation. Some of us in the charismatic church movement have thought that it's not faith. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Just follow along. That it's not faith if we are real with God and we acknowledge the crud we're walking through. David didn't do that. Verse 1 of Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Does it sound like a garment of praise right now? No, we are taking stock of some crud going down. Verse 3, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Sometimes it's not necessary to talk to God about all your problems. But this scripture is telling us that sometimes you may need to just to be real. So no matter which way it is, if you, I don't always tell God all my problems and count them and take stock of them, but there are times where I've had to say, God, this, I don't know what to do about this, or this, or this, or this. And no matter which way you want to look at it, this whole thing is about a real, authentic, intimate, and vulnerable, genuine connection between you and God. And he wants to know where your heart really is. So start, start there, but then we move on. Recognize your sin. Now I'm going to, some of you are going to squirm in your chair when I say that. And we are going to uh, clarify what I mean. But read in verse 5. Oh God, you know my foolishness. My sins are not hidden from you. Let not those who wait for you O Lord, a God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. You may remember that when Jesus' disciples asked him how to pray, one of the things that he said in his response was to pray this, forgive me our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And there's something of an acknowledgement of our trespasses that's important in this authentic, real now, have we been forgiven when we receive Jesus? Absolutely. The blood is atoned. But every time we sin thereafter, there is a relational impact that that has on our relationship with God, and it's just acknowledging. Now, why is this important in this particular context? One, is because when you're walking through the stuff that you walk through by acknowledging that you, your sins, your, the things in your life that are actually counting against what God wants to do, is going to keep you from feeling sorry for yourself. And that's important if you want to see breakthrough. I have yet to meet anyone who has seen breakthrough in their lives by feeling sorry for themselves. (laughs) It also is going to keep you from feeling entitled. While even though God has precious promises for the people of God, and while the circumstances I may be walking through today are not lined up with what I perceive those promises to be, I'm not entitled It is by grace that I'm affiliated in any way with these promises. I'm not entitled to any of it, and my sin is only hurting that process. So by acknowledging it, you're acknowledging, look, I I don't want to have any part of me that's keeping you from delivering me from this circumstance. I would say all of that as well as humility. In the New Testament says that God gives grace to the humble. Humility, poverty of spirit, is a magnet to the grace of God. And finally, is that victory... Come, the victory that you're looking for comes in a place of cleanness between you and God, clean, clean, clear air. So we want to we acknowledge, if there's anything that I'm, there's going on that you need to do in the middle of that, I'm recognizing it. Then we move on from there to recognizing that your life is His. Why is that important? Because when you're walking through impossible circumstances... If you're looking at God who's out there to deliver you so that you can just be delivered, you're missing the point. And there is something that works so hard inside of us that we just want to be delivered so that we're not in the problem anymore. But we're delivered so that God's will is done. That's the whole purpose of our life, not just our agenda. And so to recognize that your life is his, if you look with me in verse 7. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because the zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Are you getting the picture here? This reproach, this stuff that's come upon me, is all in the context of me doing your will. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made a sackcloth my garment. I, made, I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. So call to remembrance that the context of your trial is his story. History is his story. And if your life is actually, if you are following him, In the midst of your trials, if you remember, this life isn't mine. It's actually his. Therefore, guess what? The problem I'm going through is his problem. Do you see that? We tend to think of God out there, me over here. I need God to sovereignly fix my problem. No, God, here am I, and here's God, and we're all one. And if I'm following him, if I'm his then the problems that come against me, anything that affronts his purpose is actually his problem. Therefore, his power through me delivers me. And then we go into the next kind of phase that David goes through is crying out to God for salvation. Verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in in the truth of your salvation. You hear the shift of he's not just recognizing his life as his, he's not recognizing his sin. Now he's beginning to cry out for salvation. Verse 14, deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor the deep uh, swallow me up, and let the pit shut its mouth on me. I want to say, as you go through this, And it's not all going to be sequential. You don't have to go mechanically through Psalm 69 every time you are feeling depressed. However, some of this stuff is going to apply somehow. And as David was going through this process that we've just been describing, something arose inside of his heart. Even if he was feeling 90% depressed and 10% hope, hope was beginning to arise to the point that he started to call out for salvation that you just read. And I want to say to you as the people of God, let hope arise. Let hope arise. Why? Because God hears. When the children of Israel were 300 years captives as slaves in Egypt, what was it that caused God to send Moses as the deliverer? He heard the cries of his people. But I'm not in faith if I'm crying out to God. No, no. The fact that you are looking to him as the source of your answer, that is faith. And he hears the cries of his people. This is not God delivering you instead of you. This is crying out to God, working with you. David didn't ask God to be delivered from Goliath. David trusted that God was with him as he went to Goliath and he took up the five stones and he took the slingshot and he took action, but it was God who did it. But it was David who did it. Yes, it was. But it was God who did it. Yes, it was. It's not God instead of you, it's God with you. He's with you in the midst of the trial. And then we recognize God's goodness, foundation to everything that we are working through into putting this garment of praise on. If you look with me in verse 16, hear me, O Lord, your loving kindness is good. I just want to remind you, David was walking through crud that you and I don't even know of. Your problems ain't nothing compared to what he was walking through when he penned these words. And in the middle of that trial, what was his reflection beginning to rise up in his heart? Hear me, O Lord, your loving kindness is good. Can we say those words in the midst of our circumstances? Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Remembering the character and nature of this one that we're looking to. So important in our breakthrough. It is the key is to see past the bad report to the nature of the God who exists in the midst of it. Amen. And declaring his goodness. Not just seeing it, saying it. Your loving kindness is good. There's something so beautifully awkward when you do it in the midst of your trial. Beginning to raise up a praise when all the circumstances say you should never do that. And then we just kind of go through the next few verses. I'll just read them. It's just a mixture of everything that we just read, all those principles. He just kind of puts it all together and stirs it up and does it all from verse 18 to 28. 29 it says do not hide your face from your servant for i am in trouble hear me speedily draw near to my soul and redeem it deliver me because of my enemies you know my reproach my shame and my dishonor my adversaries are all before you reproach has broken my heart and i am full of heaviness i look for someone to take pity but there is none and for comforters but i found none See, he's kind of reflecting on the bad stuff and he's talking to God and looking to him for for deliverance. He's got it all going on here. Verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. And mind you... David's enemies were people. The people of God, the Bible says, do not wrestle with flesh and blood. Our wrestle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers, principalities, and powers of darkness. So when we take the scripture, if some of you have human beings who are causing problems in your life, this does not apply to them. But there are demonic forces that would want to take you out, and it does apply to them. That's what we're talking about. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they, for they persecute the ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. And then we go into this next very important step, which is this. David starts to put on a garment of praise. Verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. Remember this. In the coming days when you are struck with anything that looks, smells, or tastes like depression. In the midst of that, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Beautiful awkwardness. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. When Jesus was looking out at a crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children, all of them were about to faint because they'd been following him all day. They were hungry. They needed to get food. And he starts to take stock of what does he have. And he asks what they have. And all they have is five fish and two loaves. <laughs> and Jesus, as he oftentimes is, starts to do stuff that no one around him understood. And he, and he asked for the five fish and two loves, and he took them. And what did he do? Did he say, God, all we have is five fish and two loves. Look at all these people. What are you expecting me? <laughs> what does the scripture say? It says he gave thanks and blessed it. Yeah. And he broke it, and he told the disciples to start distributing it, and a miracle happened. Yeah. in the midst of your impossibility, thankfulness, gratitude will cause miracles to happen. It's the way of Jesus. Vanessa Ramiro had who, the wife of Jody Ramiro, they came, they lead a church called Restoration Los Angeles. They came at the end of last year and uh, they took their time with us very seriously. Vanessa's very prophetic and when she was preparing to come and minister to this church, she had a prophetic dream. And I've shared it, but I'm going to share it again, just in case you... I don't know. I'm going to share it again. And uh, she saw a, a funeral and everyone's dressed in black and yet there was this one woman at this funeral who was wearing white and she began to celebrate and it was awkward and it was weird and it didn't make sense and it wasn't it wasn't appropriate and it was just kind of weird and then as she just continued to praise the the hand of the of the uh, cadaver the dead body began to tremble and then it began to move and then eventually the body resurrected and came alive and then everybody started to praise. And she felt as though the brokenness and depression, the darkness, the funeral of Detroit... The the depression that kind of looms across the city from all of the death and the destruction and the evil that has oppressed the city, that in the midst if the bride of Christ, dressed in white would just begin to praise, even if it doesn't make sense. And even when people are looking at you like, what are you praising? Don't you see all the crud around here that something is going to happen of a resurrection? And when that resurrection happens, everybody starts to praise. That is the role of the church in the city. If we can and, and I have found living here, being sent here by God, that I've had to face personally some of the stuff that's faced the city. I've had to touch it and I've had to press through and find personal breakthrough in some of these things of depression and you name it, fear, etc., etc. And I want to say, if we can put on a garment of praise in the midst of a spirit of heaviness, that you see something broken. And finally, is this is proclaiming. God's prophetic promises because God speaks and when he speaks you usually find yourself walking in what looks like the exact opposite of what he said, but his word endures forever and circumstances, though they may indicate that he didn't mean what he said, he is still going to bring it to pass. Your role in the matter is to believe through all of it. When he spoke to Joseph, the son of Jacob, and said that your family's going to bow down before you. What was the very next thing that happened to Joseph after he had that prophetic dream? His family were the very ones who beat him and threw him into a pit and sold him in slavery. Well, thanks for the prophetic dream, God. What the heck was that all about? And then he goes to, and he's a slave and then he's kind of comes up the ladder and is promoted and then he goes to the prison. I mean, it's years before He finally saw how God in his unbelievable way worked all things around to where his family came down and bowed before him, looking to him for help. Nobody could have ever figured out how that was ever going to happen, but God's word remains true. And God has spoken promises over his people, and your trial fits into the context of those things. And David said, for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it, He was remembering what God has said about his holy city. Also, the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And I want to say, again, your trial exists in the context of the unfolding of God's purposes, and it's actually your beautiful opportunity to believe in the midst of the overwhelming forces of unbelief that you would see his goodness as you do that and your heart will become smitten to this king when you see him come through in ways that you never would have had you not done this.